listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a podcast offered in partnership with Missio Alliance. Each episode, we discuss internal and relational pressures, how they block effective leadership, and how we can move through them to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuss. All right, everyone. Hey, listen, here's the deal. I have actually been reluctant to have any kind of overt COVID, uh, COVID podcast or virus podcast just because I, I know so many people are putting resources out there. But I do happen to live in the same town as a guy named Dave Runyon. He also happens to be a really good friend of mine. We've known each other a long time. And so I did reach out to Dave um, for two reasons, and we're going to get into it in the podcast. He has a really interesting role in the life of the kingdom. And I think just out of pure interest, you, you're going to be intrigued by what he does with pastors, what he does with the governor's office, and then what he's seeing uh, as we're all trying to tackle this new reality. The other thing is Dave co-wrote with uh, his dear friend and my good friend, uh, Jay Pathak, co-wrote The Art of Neighboring. Um, how long's the book been out now? Eight, eight years? Eight years, yeah. Yeah. Eight years ago, the book dropped. And uh, listen, if, if you're not familiar with the book, it's a dead simple premise. It's just like, what if we took the command of Jesus literally and actually focused on our literal neighbors right around us? And so Dave and Jay have come out with a resource we're going to dig into a bit. Just a simple neighboring toolkit in the time of COVID. So, Dave, with that wonderful introduction, welcome to the show. It's great to be here, Steve. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, I wanted to break this into three parts. Of course, we always do the gauntlet. We'll do that at the end. Oh, can't wait. I know. Like, even now, uh, you know, the amount of guests that just put it off by talking all the time just because they fear it <laughs> so profoundly. But uh, let's get into, you know, you're a pastor, you've done church work, but uh, a little while ago you started working more overtly with the political office, the governor's office. Just tell us how you started getting into that. Yeah, and and it's a bit of a story. So I was a pastor for 10 years, basically about still a pastor? Uh, Not really. You play one. I'm a uh, pretend pastor. Yeah. But I was a pastor at a local church for 10 years at two local churches, great churches in the Denver metro area. But then I made the shift back in 2010 to basically do this made-up job. And I, I really got a heart for unity and started thinking about local missions and why aren't churches pouring more resources locally and thinking about the poor right around them instead of just doing all the great stuff we do globally. Right. And at the same time, I was thinking about why aren't we working together? Why, why aren't we thinking like we're on the, or acting like we're on the same team? And so those things were going on inside of me, and I just fell in love with this idea that the John 17 prayer, Jesus' prayer for unity. And as I started to lean into that more and more, I just wanted to do that with all my time. I had a couple of business owners who were friends of mine, and so I started doing some work on the side for them, helping them do cool kingdom stuff with their companies. And they ended up freeing me up for basically the last 10 years to go and to spend the rest of my time when I'm not with them, helping faith and government and business leaders work together uh, to serve the poor in the city. Common cause, though, right? Yes. It's very specific. Like you've got a network of cities and, and towns up and down the front range of Colorado. Sure. And so I'm in one of those networks. And each of us uh, tend to focus on a specific thing in our city. Just, just for our listeners, give us like a few of the cities and the unique focus. Because I think a lot of times people talk about, oh, we care for the poor, and it sounds so generic. But your City Unite Network is actually moving the dial on some pretty significant issues. Yeah, and it, the model that led to that was that we, and when I started to bring faith leaders together, um, pastors and priests together into the same room, I realized we didn't know our city very well. So like I was in Arvada, and we, little suburb right outside of Denver, and not little, it's 130,000, 120,000 people. Yeah. And so we started to gather with faith leaders together and we started to become friends and to think about the city. And we realized, oh my goodness, like we don't know how to answer the question of like, what's the one thing, if we were going to mobilize the body in our part of the city, what's the one thing that we should go after? And so to address that, we ended up going and getting local government leaders to just come in and share with us. So they would come into the room. We would just say, hey, tell us about how you got here. You know, how did you end up as a city manager? And then they would share that. They would share a little bit of their personal story. And then we'd always ask them, hey, if you could wave a magic wand and change something, what would you change? And when they would answer that question, you know, sometimes it would be like, oh, wow, we could go after that together. Sometimes it'd be, oh, that's neat. And then maybe a few pastors would go after you know, that issue together. But um, that model was magic for us because it allowed the government leaders 
to provide vision so that none of the faith leaders were like trying to get their own agenda accomplished. We were just right. listening to the government leaders and their story, and we would just listen to where they felt stuck and then try to think, you know, could we mobilize around that? Could we actually demonstrate the gospel around that? And so that's what happened in Arvada. And then other pockets in different parts of the Denver metro area started to pop up. Uh, you started to bring together pastors in the Broomfield area, yeah. and you started to do the same thing and meet with leaders, and you guys got really you know, excited and have done a lot of great work around affordable housing. Yeah, we Other, tackled one of the most crazy, difficult issues you can. It's <laughs> nuts. Yeah, I wouldn't touch that one with yeah, a 10-foot yeah, yeah. pole. Like yeah. yeah, I actually wanted to try to like do something way low bar. <laughs> so Yeah, I uh, actually remember the moment we're in our clergy meeting. We did this very thing you said. We brought in city leaders, and we asked that question, and um, and I was hoping maybe, you know, free lunches or something for kids at <laughs> yeah, school. Something easy. And then someone said, let's tackle affordable housing because Broomfield has literally none. Yeah. And I remember thinking, oh man, here comes three to five years. But it is amazing. It's amazing. And so other parts of the city, they've gone after foster care. A lot of work has been around school partnerships. Yeah. And you know, when you get into schools, you get the whole, you get all, the whole gamut of issues. They, everybody, right. you know, you get substance abuse and you get um single moms living below the poverty line and you get literacy and you you know everything and so school partnerships i think are one of the best places to start yeah right if someone's listening to this and they want to start i think the first thing you'd say is don't just start your own thing actually go ask somebody right yes, who's already doing this for sure and i'd I, say do it together like go out have some coffees and meals with other leaders and see if there's a heart there for people to work together so you're not just out there trying to push this thing you know up the road all by yourself yeah, that was one of the big shifts is a lot of churches start programs without first being curious as if nothing's already happening. I've been in rooms that you've facilitated and it's always funny. You'll bring like a city manager or someone in and they'll give us insight on what it's like for them when a church suddenly decides they want to be helpful yeah. and they never call, they never look into <laughs> if something's people who've been doing this, people who are trained with master's degrees to do this very thing. Yeah, and that's part of what you do is you're just trying to get us to slow down and listen first to the city leaders that were there before we were. Yeah, and I think one of the things that happens in our culture is a lot of times when people need help, they just pick up the phone and call the city and they say, hey, what kind of program do you have for this? And so when you start asking them, hey, what are you getting a lot of phone calls on that you don't know where to direct people? You start getting to like, oh, there's a gap there that maybe the church could fill. Yeah, we're actually perfectly designed to do the very thing the city needs quite often. For sure. Yeah, for all sure. right. So somewhere along the line, this kind of moved into a state level, and and you're not the only person, but you're one of the pastors that, how, how would I say it? You're like a liaison between the governor and some pastors in Colorado. Or how would you describe it, what you do? I would say I help people come into a room and to do that model that we just described at the state level. State level. And to say, hey, what's on your heart? What are you seeing? Where do you think you could mobilize? You know, I think... What's sitting in all of our congregations is the sleeping giant of volunteerism. I, you would hope, right? You would hope that we all have a heart for the poor and and we are all following the scriptures in that way. Yeah. And the question is, how are we mobilizing those people? And so we just, uh, it was about 10 years ago, our former governor, Hickenlooper, uh, invited me to come in and to begin to uh, shape what that looks like. You know, most most states and cities have clergy councils, and a lot of times they can just end up gravitating into a nice little photo ops. And so you just show up and you you do your thing, and everybody goes, oh yeah, I'm part of that clergy council. And I think one of the things that we've learned is that if you can get focused on one cause, don't try to take on the world. Just if you can think about one thing that you're calling people towards, a lot of times you can get traction in a really significant way. Yeah, so if I remember our Governor Hickelooper, a couple of his key issues, one was homelessness. That's right. And then one, I believe, was racial reconciliation. It was yeah. a big passion of his. Yeah, the homelessness stuff we got a lot of traction on because he was really he passionate was about mayor. homeless families. And he really had this idea of, like, could we connect every congregation? At that time, there was about 1,000 in the Denver metro area. He was the mayor at that time. Could we connect every congregation and have them just mentor and adopt and pay the first and last month's rent for one homeless family? And that little one congregation, one family model I wasn't around for the origins of that, but it was beautiful. It just yeah. took off and gained a lot of traction. Yeah, the thing I love about it is I think people hear government work, they either get suspicious or they think it's all committees and policy, but that is about as granular as it got. It really did get down to every congregation having a task. Yeah. Okay, so Governor Polis, uh, a relatively new governor now, yes. 
And I believe his passion is um, justice and... Um, it's really around early childhood care. That's oh, what he. That's okay. what makes him tick. I mean, he really, he has done a lot of stuff with getting full day kindergarten for everyone in the state and has pushed a lot of stuff through. So he's got a huge passion for education. And he also really wants to see the recidivism rates come down. And so working, you know, seeing faith communities work with the criminal justice system in order to make connections and build relationships for people that are coming out of the system and so that they never end up going back. You know, they get embraced into healthier relationships and communities and jobs. And they know that if you can get a good job within the first few months of leaving prison, that the odds of you going back goes way down. Yeah, it's interesting just hearing you between the two governors. It's the same problem. It's just a different population. One's interested in homeless people. One's interested yeah. in people not going back behind bars. Yeah. And both need the faith community to step in. And yeah, and they're, they're interested in all of it, but it's just kind of like, where do you catch them? And yeah. what are they thinking about at that point in time? Yeah. So then things got crazy interesting just a few weeks ago. Now the governor and, of course, governors and politicians all over the country are suddenly having to grapple with the coronavirus and what's the state going to do. So just give us an insight. Uh, what have you seen the, the pressures that either the governor or the governor's office is facing in this like unprecedented time? What's it like for them? Yeah. Well, yeah, and I, I can really speak. I spend a lot of my time with people on, you know, on his team yeah, and watching just the, the enormous amounts of anxiety that exists right now for everyone, for every leader at any stage. Cause I also spend a lot of time with business leaders and right. with faith leaders, but to watch local government leaders and to watch them begin to think about how am I going to navigate through this? How do I help? Like just, um, just think about how incredible it is that we, here we are in Colorado and they have us in a place where we have drastically changed all of our behavior without, you know, freaking out and revolting. I mean, it's that's an incredible task. Yeah, in but what been kind in, of time frame? Like the, the the first big shift was like forty eight hours, maybe. It was amazing. Yeah, it was amazing. And to think about leading through a moment like that, and to ha how do you handle all of the anxiety that's coming at you? Because when you're at a government level, every single domain has a has a you've got a bullseye on you for every one of them to come to you with their problems right. and with their anger and, and with their frustrations. And so to watch that happen has been really, really interesting. And I've been really impressed with the way that our governor has handled that, the way that he's led. A lot of his leading has happened through press conferences, but he's just a really like calming person. That's what I've noticed is he is actually a phenomenal example of differentiation. He's a very calm presence. He just gives information and he kind of de-escalates. Right. The other thing I noticed is, you know, he hosts not quite weekly, but almost a weekly call for clergy. We all get to call in. There's usually hundreds of us on the line yeah. and you and Amanda Henderson are, um, are kind of managing it. Yeah. Um, but I, I, what I marveled at at the last call is he spends about half of the call giving us an update and about half taking any question from yeah, us. Yeah, he did on that last call. It's amazing. Oh, my goodness. And I was just listening to the, the all the different questions and just thinking, okay, for this, I think it was at 5.30 in the afternoon? Yeah. Okay, so it's toward the end of a day for this guy. He's he's probably been in a day of meetings, and his ability to manage a random group of people in questions, I, I was impressed. <laughs> a very diverse you know, type of questions. Yeah, lots of broad <laughs> questions. A lot of people fascinated with their parking lots. That's what I noticed. <laughs> right. yeah. Right. yeah, everyone wanted to know if we could get people in cars. I just saw on Twitter today. I wish I was making this up, man. I should. I'll post this photo in the show notes. I don't. Maybe you've seen it. Um, it was drive-in church. Yeah. And how to worship with your wiper blades and your freaking. Uh, <laughs> have, have you seen this? Yeah, I saw it. Like literally, yeah. if you if you want to accept Jesus, you turn your wiper blades on. I was yeah. like. And, it's great. And I thought it was satire, but it's not. <laughs> no, it is satire. It has to be. It, I, yeah, I think it's a joke. I think it's a joke. But anyway, we'll go look at it. Go, look it, up. go, go, it go look it up on Twittersphere out there and let That's us know. A great, if it's a joke, that makes me feel so much better because it's being positioned in some uh, as a serious thing. And I'll just speak to this. Government leaders, none of, nobody that's in government is doing it for a paycheck. And I remember when I first started connecting with government leaders, I was working as somebody as, who was in ministry and I just couldn't believe how many like commonalities that we had. Yeah, you know, uh, there's a calling. If you're in government leadership at, at that level, there's some type of a calling that's happened to you. You have this like innate desire to serve. Yeah, much like people who are in ministry. That's and so, right. 
the more I leaned into that domain, the more I realized, oh my goodness, we have so much common ground here to work from. Yeah, these and, are and they're all, and by the way, they're always, there's no shortage of outside opinions, just like for, you know, people church in the, leaders. that's right, church yeah. leaders and government leaders. Yeah. Yeah. I was sitting down with actually your friend, Gary Krieger, who is our city's uh, chief of police. And uh, we had a little clue. He was new to the city, and our chief, our previous chief, had been with us like 27 years. So Gary's new. We have a clergy meeting to welcome him and let him know we're praying for him. And what a guy, by the way, great guy. And he he made a comment that stuck with me that I think it relates to this. He, he said, "Listen, people don't think about this with the police, but we never have anyone we get to call. Mm. Like we're always the last That's call." Right. And he said, people criticize the way we behave and what we do, but they don't realize that when things escalate, we don't get to leave and someone else comes in, we're the ones. Yeah. I don't know why that struck me, but that's kind of what's going on with the governor and, and a lot of our city leaders. That's right. Is they get these calls because no one knows what to do, so they call the city. That's right. And the other thing I've realized with government leaders at almost every level is almost every to every relationship they have, People are asking them for something that's either on the table or under the table. Yeah, they want I, something. I will never forget this, Steve. I was sitting, we were, I was at a Rockies game. I'd known our mayor, former mayor in Arvada for a number of years. And we're at a Rockies game together. And this is probably two and a half years into us spending time together. And he looks at me and he goes, hey, just so you know, I'm still waiting for you to ask for something. And, it, and I go, what? He goes, yeah, I just don't have anybody in my life that like isn't doesn't like want at, that doesn't want a piece of me. And that just hit me of like how lonely that must be to always have to be on guard. And I get it. You can totally understand why right. you would default into that because almost everyone is asking something from you. And so I've just found and, and tried to take a posture of just being available and being a friend to people that God's put in authority. And I found that just by doing that, it's created a lot of openness to build some really significant relationships over time. That's good. I've noticed uh, with the whole um, virus kind of shutdown, my my schedule has gotten so out of whack. So something that's been helping me is I'm just choosing a different population of people to pray for every day. So today is medical professionals in our church. And it's easy. I just reach out. How can I pray for you? Then some of them I pray over in person. Like they call in, some of them just send me their request. Wednesdays has become um, city leaders. Yeah. And it's just the same, just the reminder that these are good people of goodwill doing the best they can, trying to figure out uncharted territory like the rest of us. Yeah. All right, so you've got one foot in government. You're, you're serving your city. You're serving the state. You've got another foot in business. Let's talk about your church foot. Yeah. So a couple of questions. That's three feet, by the way. Three feet. All right. You're a three-legged stool. That's that's great. Yeah, you're Mr. Peg. <laughs> is Mr. Peg, is that an American reference? That's probably an Australian that's, reference. I've ne I have no idea what you're talking about. But why about. would I ask you about a song either? You're not really someone that's into That's right, I'm not. Mr. Peg is a song. Okay. Uh, Jake the Peg with my extra leg. No. I know I'm not really into music that much, but I'm I'm pretty sure none of your listeners know what you're talking about I right believe. I, I'm, <laughs> I'm actually a big deal in the Southern Hemisphere. I believe... <laughs> A handful of my list because we are not a we are not a, an American. There's like five. Your family might know what you're talking about right now. <laughs> I'm a, yeah, this podcast is actually in like 35 nations. We are not an American centric. Anyway, Jake the Peg, three legs. So you've got this church leg. Uh, first question: What is your best technique to get a pastor to return an email? <laughs> I don't email him. That's okay. my first. That's, that's the my first thought. So yeah, I mean, I think. Building relationships with faith leaders is, is hard because the demands of, they can barely keep up with the demands of everybody that's in their or, own organization. Right. And then I'm running around popping up going, hey, let's go have coffee together and let's talk about the city and let's talk about all the, you know, cross-sector collaboration, all these things that nobody on their leadership team is like asking them, hey, how well are you doing with becoming friends with other pastors in the city? That's That question doesn't happen a lot in the old annual review. Nor it's, was it really something we were trained for, right, in seminary. It's, right. it's maybe now, maybe not, but yeah. we're but, not coming to our churches saying, oh, I need to be giving time to my city. Right. Yeah. And, and so I think, I think it is a trick, but I think because I was a pastor for a while, I have been in that world, and I'm able to connect with some of them and get time with some of them, which has been a real gift, and especially during this moment. Like, I... I have just been thinking nonstop about what it must be like 
to lead a congregation right now? I mean, you're doing it, Steve. Like no. you're, so you can, maybe you should be speaking to this more than more than I should. But I mean, to to be leading this this organization that the whole model, the whole funding model is really tied to like gathering on a weekend, to getting together. <laughs> so like yeah. the entire model of like how it works has been blown apart for this, you know, hopefully short season, relatively yeah. short season in time. Yeah. And so the amount of the amount, like the amount of leadership that it takes for a faith leader to be thinking and leading in these uncertain moments and uncertain future is it's really intense. And so I've just tried to reach out to my friends and to the people that I know, especially the people that are right around me and to ask how they're doing, to ask how they're feeling, to ask what things are, are coming at them, what's at the top of, of their plate right now that they need to be taken care of. And it's, I'm encouraged. Like I am really encouraged about how the church and how faith leaders are pivoting as a result of social distancing and as a result of not gathering. I, I think, I think the church is going to be exercising a lot of muscles that haven't been used a lot that have almost yeah. been atrophied. And I'm, I'm seeing pastors and priests and faith leaders. They're realizing this is an opportunity to pour into parents and to see yeah. them pour into their kids. Yeah, yeah. You know, this is an opportunity to decentralize the church. This is an opportunity to like where people's all their daily rhythms are all messed up. And so this is a great opportunity to like think about spiritual rhythms and to like introduce new spiritual disciplines into yeah. people's lives. And so I'm actually, it's a hard, hard time. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to downplay any of that. Right. But I'm I'm really encouraged about some of the ways that faith leaders are already starting to adjust and starting to address things that had been weaknesses and they're they're building up their the church the big c church they're building up the big c church in some really some really profound ways yeah it's interesting you mentioned like equipping parents i got an email this week from a family in the church and they said we're a church that does communion every week it's part of what we do and we generally uh, offer communion to anybody, so including kids. And this dad emailed, he's like, you didn't give us enough time to lead our kids through communion. Because wow. we're doing it all virtually and pre-recorded. And I thought we'd left enough time, but he was basically saying, look, at the age of my kids and the chance to explain and everything, and suddenly you're under the bread or the cup. It was like, oh, yeah, that's really great feedback. Yeah. Um, so, so I told our video guy this week, I'm like, we're adding like two or three extra minutes of just silence where giving people in a household. And at the same time, Dave, how do we then uh, think of the person who's watching on their own? They don't have kids in the house. They're maybe right. single. and So that's been interesting too. Like we are now doing a meet and greet, which I know I, people always talk about how much they hate the meet and greet. I love the meet and greet. And we're saying, yeah, this is the time to text somebody, right? Like get your, get <laughs> your you phone out and reach somebody yeah. through text. There you go. Yeah, the, the priesthood of the believer stuff that's being lived out is beautiful right it now. Is. So what are you finding in your Arvada network? You've got a group of pastors there that you keep in pretty close contact with. Yeah. I We've just hopped on a few phone calls just to laugh and just to be together. And we have a lot of pre-existing relationship, so that's been huge. Um, I think crisis always leads to opportunity. And so it's led for opportunity for us to just share best practices and ideas, all like the things that like pastors geek out about and trying to figure out how to pull off their online service, all this stuff. It's been great to create some space where they can really get into the weeds and they're offering each other space. They're saying, Hey, listen, if you don't have a good place to record, right. come and use my spot. Yeah. And just to see that happen is, is really, really fun for me. Yeah. Yeah. And trying to figure out, okay, how do you pass to people virtually outside of a church service? That's right. Yeah. I've seen a handful of, uh, of people online, you know, they like to do the straw man about, Church is putting too much time into their online service, but most pastors I know are putting just as much or more time into how do we connect with isolated people? That's and, right. Yes. That's right. And and I think a lot of their staffs. So this is one pastor in town that's at a large church. Just looked at me and said, "Oh my goodness, I cannot believe how much of my people's time is geared towards the weekend." And then he said, I, "Now I get a chance." to actually take all of that time and energy that was geared towards the weekend services. Yeah. And now I'm just seeing them like mobilizing out and connecting with people. And they're basically doing like, you know, like the old school phone tree, they're doing right. zoom trees. Right. And that has been really, really encouraging as well to see. Yeah. It's also, I, I, I think, I think all of us get into ministry because our lives were changed and we want to be part of life change. 
and then we have to run a church. It's almost <laughs> for like sure. it, it feels to me like running a church is the price you pay to get to be part of life change. That's right. And this is an amazing opportunity to go back to like what I would call like old fashioned Eugene Peterson shepherding. That's right. It's like we're we have a window here to go back to the basics, and it's really really pure. Yeah. So that leads us to your. I think we're now on your fourth leg, uh, which is your <laughs> uh, your neighboring work. No, th- this leg just came out of the work of helping faith and, and government right. and business leaders work together. This was symptomatic of it's, what we were doing. There. It's more of a wart. It's more of a, <laughs> a, a, a ganglion on a leg than a whole extra leg. Because it is your neighboring work is the outgrowth of your unity movement, I'd say, yep. right? And so what, what you've done, and you've been leading this for years now, is, is this very simple idea of taking the, the nine neighbors around you in their houses and uh, do you know their name, do you know their hope, and do you know their hurt, right? Those sure. would be, is that the way you'd word it as well? Yeah, I would even dumb it down more than that. I would say, do you know their name? And then would you just consider what's the next small step that you could take in order to build a connection with that person, with that yeah. family? And so I've just found if you can just like do the small things over a long period of time, I've been shocked at, what, at what's happened as a result. And so it's just- Right, because no one does it. That's right. It's just taking the next small step. It's moving from that conversation of like, this is embarrassing. I, I've lived next to you for three years and I forgot your name, even yeah. though I've met you three times too. Yeah. Okay, now I'm going to remember their name. And now when I see them, I'm actually going to use their name when I see them. Yeah. And then it's talking a little bit more than just like waving. And then it's, hey, you need to borrow something or you need to help with moving something 10 feet in your garage, just asking for the help. So for me, it's just been- the value of helping people understand like there's something sacred that's happening outside your front door, right in your neighborhood. Yeah. That proximity based relationships are, are really, really unique. And that if you just take the next small step and then the next small step, you'll wake up one day like I did going, Oh my goodness. Like this is a whole different way of living. Yeah. Your life is actually invested in the well-being of your neighbors. Yeah. Yeah, I was at for a walk the other day and Lisa and I, um, try to practice this kind of neighboring as well. And it was interesting, three doors down, uh, I, I won't name the lady, but she wouldn't let me go. I'm coming out, I'm walking right by a house at the end of my walk, and I'm not quite in virus life where I've slowed down, I'm still in efficiency life. I think it was the first week of social isolation and we were still scrambling more Zoom meetings than you can imagine that week. And you know, so my brain was still fast, but she was so desperate just to connect. She's sitting on her front porch, I'm 15 feet away, and it was one of those conversations where I kept trying to land the plane and she kept taking off the runway yeah. again. And it, I'm embarrassed to say it probably took four of her relaunching the conversation for me to finally realize, just stop. That's right. Just listen. She needs someone to talk to. We had a right. delightful conversation. And people right now in this moment that we're in need this more than ever. I mean, because right. we're not seeing, we don't have face-to-face interactions at work right now. We don't have face-to-face interactions at school or church. I mean, all we have left is our neighborhood, and pe- we see people out walking everywhere right now. Whether you, yeah. even if you live in an apartment complex or a ranch, like the amount of visibility of people is way greater. It's off the right charts, now. yeah. And so there's a there's a window here for us to combat the isolation and the loneliness with literal neighboring, but to do it in really smart ways. And we've, I've talked to a lot of people in the public health field right now. If they could go back again, they would rephrase social distancing because. Uh, what we're talking about is distancing, but when you add the word social, people start thinking, oh, no, I just need to go inside my house, and it, that's not the case. You can distance and still remain you know, socially connected, and I think that's the key right now in this window, and I think there's a lot of opportunity right now. All right, so let's talk about that. So you've actually made a PDF on your website. I'm going to have a link to it in the show notes. Um, here's what I'm interested in exploring. Uh, I, I totally understand why social isolation, stay in place sheltering is a gospel response. It's not to protect yourself, it is to literally protect your neighbor and vulnerable people. I get that. There's also a second gospel response, particularly happened in the early church, that would intentionally move into danger. I think what you've provided in this document is also somewhere in between that, to where you are isolating for the sake of your neighbor, but in the document, you're providing just some really practical ways that you can engage your neighbor in social isolation. Uh, I'll have the link, but just give us one or two that you'd want us to know about. Yeah, and I think what you're referring to are the two major plagues that happened in the first 400 years of the the early church. 
I think the only difference is we know so much more now than what they knew then. So like we actually understand that it's not just about putting ourselves in danger. We're actually endangering the people that we're helping. Right. Vulnerable and people. I love if you want to read something that's just incredible about the early church, go get Rodney Stark's The Rise of Christianity. You right. and I have both read it and right. love it. And he details a lot about their understanding of how disease and viruses spread, how the Christians reacted, and how it actually was critical to the growth of the early church. So can't suggest that enough. Here we are, yeah. several, you know, several, a couple Didn't thousand years later, we're yeah. a little bit more sophisticated. Yep. And so I think what we have now is a chance to think, okay, I'm going to protect everyone. I'm going to protect myself. I'm really going to protect, especially our at-risk population. And so how do we remain connected with our literal neighbors while doing that? And so, and this is basic stuff. And by the way, I want to read this quote because I think it's just, it was so powerful. Um, this is Karen Geisiger. She's an infectious disease epidemiologist. I'm sure I said that wrong. And then she's got a bunch of letters after her name. She, she this does have a lot of letters. I'm looking at that. <laughs> this quote is, uh, is on that document. But she said this, and we were just talking. She said, she didn't know a lot about the neighboring stuff that I had done in the past, but she just said, listen, right now we don't need churches to create a bunch of new programs. What we need is for the people who attend those churches to simply be good neighbors and to do it in a careful and thoughtful manner. And it's just, you know, I'm, I'm drinking all the Kool-Aid on the neighboring thing already, yeah. but she said it to me and that's what I was like, I got to put together something that takes what's happening from kind of the public health vantage point. And also through this idea of like, what does it mean to, to love your literal neighbors right now? Yeah. Your proximity and to do it in a neighbors. smart way. And so that's yeah. what this document is. It's yep. just, it's simple stuff, you know, going up and connecting and building like a little directory uh, so that neighbors can have each other's information. One of the best things we're doing right now in, in our neighborhood is we're doing these sit-ins where yeah, we I, just, we just I come just up looking at we that. just have like, we're just sitting, we all bring our own lawn chair. We yeah. all bring our own drinks and then we sit 10 feet away from each other. Yeah, no one shares anything. And it is, no one shares anything. We're not touching the same services. Yeah. And it's strange. We're, we're trying to navigate stuff with the kids because the kids, depending on the age, have no clue right. about, you know, personal space or social distancing. And so, but we've really been careful and yet we we have this deep thirst right now for connection and it's been so good just to sit out in the cul-de-sac and to do this. It's, it's been life-giving on right. so many different levels. Let's, so get, that's, let's get practical on that. So yeah. you've got your own lawn chair and your drink, you're six to 10 feet apart. How many neighbors can you be in conversation with at those distances? Like we've literally had this question in our house because we've thought about doing the same thing. Well, what's happening is it just splinters off into like, you know, so th three like or three, four right? yeah, yeah. couples. And so my yeah. wife and I are, we might be sitting together and then yeah. my neighbor who's single sitting over there 10 feet away. And so you're ending up, but then somebody, you know, some says something fairly interesting or brings up something that. Uh, makes everybody anxious. And then you, everyone gets, everyone, everyone joins the one conversation. Somebody does their political diatribe for the day and, and everybody kind of just tunes into what they're saying. My other question, has anyone ever brought a tambourine? And if they did, what did you do about it? Never. Okay. Ne have you had a tambourine? I have not had a tambourine in a neighboring party, but I have had a, a, a militant tambourine player in a life group before. And they hide it under the couch. And, and you're- As a joke? Nope. They're Oh, well, it's just time to find a new life. As an act of worship. Yeah, it's, get, no, They're like, it's tambourine time. Right. Seriously. <laughs> if hey, that gonna... ever happened to me, it would only be a one-time deal. I promise you. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so then an, a serious question. You've also got, okay, caring for older and at-risk neighbors. The, the other question, Dave, is what do we do about our homeless shelters uh, where all the volunteers have yes. gone away? What do we do about our nursing homes? We have to both protect those people. We have to... By serving those people, we then are putting our neighbors at risk. Yes. What's your word on that? Oh, I just was hoping you wouldn't ask me this. This is the hardest question. And when yeah. people are, this is the hardest question for us in the faith community. It's the hardest question right now for our government leaders. Yeah. And we are all saying, listen, you have to do what you feel called to do. Yeah. You, If you go into the front lines with this, do so and, and use every precaution possible. And And by the way, we need you there. And then, like this is the hardest part. Also, here's all of these different reasons why this is crazy, yeah. and we really desperately need you on the front lines. And so, so I've been wondering, like we, we've thought, okay, what if we take the least likely population to succumb to this illness, right. and then what if they agree to fully quarantine as if they had the illness? 
but we're not quite there yet. That's the answer. That is the right answer. Yeah, where they, they, they're in a full lockdown. But then the other thought is, okay, what if we just, just relax and wait for people to come out the other side of the illness? And if they truly are immune, yes. now they become the, the army. It's a tough, we're, yeah. it's killing us. It's yeah. a tough one. Because, uh, you know, uh, we've got a guy in our church who's high up in our local rescue mission. Yeah. And, and just all the volunteers just departed. And he's still feeding 1,500 people a day. Yeah. Uh, I talked to a doctor in in our church yesterday, and her job is nothing but coronavirus. That's her exclusive job right now. Is going all she does is testing. She has young kids at home, and it's like, and she's just praying for protection. She's just praying, and her, she said to me, "I don't think she'd mind me sharing." She said, "Just pray that I can bring the peace of Christ into a very anxious hospital room, that I don't catch the patient's anxiety because she's in the full garb, like the three yeah. layers." She looks like a, you know, she's an astronaut and she's trying to somehow have a human interaction. And then when she gets home, you know, did she clean herself enough to be safe? It's, yeah. I can't imagine. And now put yourself in the shoes of government leaders right now because they're just damned if they do, damned if they don't. So you come to them and you say, hey, listen, um, what do you think we should do? So you're working at a shelter, right? You're running yeah. a shelter and you say, hey, listen, social distancing rules. Uh, you know our system here. We've got, you know, 2,000 people in this amount of space. How do you want us to do that? Now, if you're government leader, you have to either say, uh, number one, the rules don't apply to you. Yeah. Okay. Which that brings up a whole opens up a whole can of worms. Giant or number two, dish, yeah. Or number two, you have to you have to abide by all the social distancing rules, which means you need to take eighteen hundred people and put them out on the streets and in places where the weather's not good. That's you know they're they're now exposed and could actually it could be fatal to be on the streets, and so it is. It's the million-dollar question right now that a lot of leaders are wrestling with. Yeah. So, you know, I've noticed over the year and a half, you know, my veteran experience as a podcaster, the amount of guests that postpone the gauntlet, and you're also wanting to postpone it because you want to talk. No, I just have one more thing to yeah, say. Yeah, you want to say one, but this is, yeah, this no, is I think clearly this, this an would be avoidance. Helpful. This, yes, I'm avoiding. Yeah, That's yeah. fine. But I, this, I think this would actually be helpful. All right. Here, here's what I've observed about good leaders, especially during this crisis, but just in general. This is just true. You've talked about it a lot in your podcast. Good leaders always slow everything down and they like when everything comes towards you and it's the scale of differentiation right yeah. like when you when you react out of your emotions you rarely make good decisions when you re, when you slow things down and you react out of your thinking your decisions are always better and so in this crisis it's been so interesting whether it's business or government or faith leaders as everyone's anxiety comes at you what does it look like to be the kind of person that can actually slow things down yeah. and allow people to respond and to make big, big decisions out of thinking and not out of emotion and to not let other people put these deadlines on you that you have to make it right now. Yeah. You, you rarely do. Yeah. You rarely actually do have to make it right now. And so that's what I've appreciated about a lot of the leaders I've been around is to watch them be able to lead and to slow things down and to uh, buy themselves time to get into their own brain and their own thinking and to help their teams get into their own thinking as well. And so I think that's been something that's become really clear to me. That's become, that's been like the biggest thing for me out of all of the family systems theory stuff has been that one thought. And, and I never, I never regret buying myself more time. I regret all the time, like sending an email too early or making a decision on the spot with a team too early. Yeah. I like I just can't think of a time where I've been like, oh, I really blew it there because I bought myself time <laughs> to to actually get into my thinking instead of my emotions. Yeah, yeah. So you know, you've just fallen right into my trap for the gauntlet because I love it. Let's go. Because uh, in order to slow ourselves down, 
a leader has to be aware when they're not well. Mm. So how do you know when you're not well? <laughs> I just asked my wife. <laughs> she, Actually, the, I don't even ask her. She just tells me. Uh, she just tells me when I'm not well. But no, I know, I know that I'm not well when I go to bed at night with a pit in my stomach and I wake up with a pit in my stomach. Like when I'm carrying anxiety, I can just feel it. And I want to fix it. I want to fix everything before I go to bed. And when the issues are big enough that I know I can't fix it, it's out of my control or that it's going to take time, it, I'm not well. I'm not living in a healthy space. Yeah. Uh, for most leaders, there's just a set of, of situations that are always going to generate anxiety. What kinds of people or topics do you just know, oh, that's the kind of person that makes me anxious or that's the kind of situation that makes me anxious? I hate situations in which we're talking about people's livelihood. Like when we're talking about like how people make a living in their career paths and I'm in positions to help guide them out of the one that they're in to something else. And when I have to be in those moments, that's that, those are some of the most anxious situations for me personally. Yeah. You're talking about like laying someone off yeah. or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Cutting, cutting their support from them. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Uh, one of the gifts I think of family systems theory is it helps us understand generational traits, the traits that have been handed down to us from our family. Could you give us one trait that you think is a real asset and one that's a liability in your leadership? Yeah, what a great question. My family, I, I grew up in, I have a great family. And the one of the things, it, this is a principle. It was always, this was just pounded into us. People are more important than things. People are more important than things. And so when somebody, we'd be getting upset about some kind of material thing, it was always this idea. And it just gave me this like strong, strong value around relationships and not much around material things. Like, I mean, there's, I think about my whole family, like we just don't get caught up in stuff very much. And, and it really has been this like very focused deal of like the person. You know, what, what is it, what, it, what it's going on relationships matter has been like a thread that's been in my life for a long, long time. Okay. Um, something that has not been helpful, man, we're not like the most, and I'm talking about my family of origin here. Yep, um, we're right. not the most like empathetic bunch of people and I'm not personally part of it was like around this. Another one of the principles was like, I'm going to say this really crudely. You don't deserve anything. Like, like we, I just, we had this like sense of like, Hey, whatever I have, it's better than what I deserve. Now that's a good thing. The shadow side of that yeah. is like, like even in this moment right now. So my kids uh, are starting to put the pieces of the puzzle together. Like, Oh, we're probably not going to go back to school. The loss for them, for my two high school kids around high, uh, losing a whole high school sports season, right. my, my sixth grader of the grief about not being able to do sixth grade graduation and missing friends and teachers. My unfiltered response is the whole world's going through this. There's nothing good that we can do by dwelling on this. Let's just like do the best we can. Like there's like, I have like zero natural empathy. I have to try so hard yeah. to, to get there. And so I think that's a trait that I've just learned. And it really isn't, it impacts how much I'm able to connect at a heart level with my kids. When I'm just always the one going, Hey, like, let's just suck it up. The whole some world's going through that. Get yeah. over it. Some, yeah. Some version of yeah. get over it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it really diminishes the ability to, to love your kids. Yeah. I was raised in a get and over my it. wife. Yeah. I was raised in a get over it family. And I, it's, I like the way you phrased it because I do think the benefit of it is this resiliency. Sure. You really are a highly resilient person. You're not easily knocked down for very long. And then the shadow side is that kind of uh, empathy. Or I remember one of my favorite days as a kid is I was totally a hypochondriac as a kid. So I should say this first, that my mother sent me to school nine out of 10 times when she should have, because I'd say, I'm too sick to go. And she'd make me go. But I remember this one day going to the principal's office because I was so sick. I had this huge fever. I was really out of it. And I'm overhearing the principal say to my mom, you really need to come get him. He's really sick. And me feeling so vindicated <laughs> uh, because I came from a get over a family. But that's, that's interesting. So, so I, I do think there are a lot of people in your life that would say that they feel deeply cared for by you. And it's not mm. that you're faking it. 
So what is that? Relationships matter. Yeah, I have okay, like so this that's strong. I have like, like, I just get filled up through relationships. Yeah, okay. And especially, I would say, just ones like our our friendship. We we're intentional about spending time together regularly. We don't just right. see each other like once every six months. Right. And if we do start to drift a little bit without seeing each other, one of us is like, "Hey, let's let's go get some you know Indian food together." We were literally last week trying to figure out how do we actually eat together in a parking lot ten right. feet apart. That's exactly right. Yeah. And so I think for me, it's that being intentional with a small group of people over the long over haul. Over time, that's good. All right, tell us about a recent mistake you've made and how you recovered from it. <laughs> well, this is going to be real recent. So we're doing these governor clergy calls. And so um, my role is really, it's not very big. Like I'm just helping connect a bunch, you know, hundreds yeah. of faith leaders to the governor and he'll hop on and give an update and people will be like, Hey, can we do, are we going to be able to meet at Easter or not? The answer is no, by the way. Uh, so, and it, and then it's Q and A and, but the calls have been a really important, you know, thread of yeah. his community outreach and what they're doing. And so last week we had this call scheduled for three o'clock and I'm out there, I'm not an administrative genius. And so my system isn't really great. Accurate, yep. And I get a phone call 40 minutes before, so it's 2.20, 2.25. I get a phone call from Annalise. Annalise is on the ground uh, doing all this great work of helping the governor's office and all of their community outreach. And she's like my main person that's like we're working together with Amanda to set up all these calls. And she calls at 225 and says, hey, listen, uh, the president's press conference is going long. And that means that the governor's press conference is going to start late. And that means we need to push this call. Now, they're 40 minutes away from, I, in my mind, I'm just saying this is 500 faith leaders have organized their day around this. And I don't even know how to communicate. Like we, I did, I just looked, I was like, no. And I just went into like this really <laughs> like, I just started. And then I started telling her, I'm like, do you, you want me to tell 500 people? And I, I mean, I just started this passive aggressive, you know, stuff. And she's like, well, and I go, well, let's do it at three 15. We can stall with them on the phone until three 15. She, and she's like, well, what, what if they're not done by three yeah, that's And I'm like, work. well, and, and I just, I won't give up. So I'm just doing all of my weird stuff yeah. to try to manage the situation, not thinking that the president of the stinking United States is running late and the governor needs to run late. And so maybe we as like pastors could adjust, right. but that wasn't my thought. My thought right. was I'm going to fight to keep it where it is. So that the most people are on it because yeah. that'll make me feel better in some strange way. So I go through that whole thing. Um, she basically just like says, Hey, I'm sorry. And then I, I did a bunch of other like strange stuff. I'm like, Hey, like, listen, do you know how much work this is? And I'm just like volunteering, <laughs> like I'm volunteering to do this. Yeah, I did, I did though. I, I brought out a bunch yeah. of, uh, you had a stuff. lot of tools in your, right. All the tools in the toolbox. So yeah. then she basically stands firm and she was really nice. And she like, was like, we're not, we can't do it at 315 and here's why. And so finally, like, I just realized none of my anxiety is going to work on changing the situation. And then I start watching the governor's press conference. So it's not, so we bump it all the way to five, which right. I was fighting against and trying to like will that not to happen. So the governor's press conference ends up going until almost four o'clock. Yeah. So like I am sitting there realizing I'm an idiot. Uh, she was 100% right. And I'm really glad that I didn't like try to will this to happen and then create a giant mess. Yeah. Like a total giant mess. It would have just been me yeah, and like my phone. friend Amanda on the phone, just like stalling Waiting. for 55 minutes. I think minutes. he's about to wrap up. <laughs> All right. So how did, you how did you recover from it? I, I texted, I texted Annalise that night and I did and with Amanda. We have a little thread and I just said, yeah. I would just like to take this time to acknowledge that I was totally wrong and you were right. And that was a really good decision. And that was it. And then they just like wrote back a little and, smiley faces or whatever. Yeah. So you did repair with her. Yeah, and then are you at peace? Do you are you good at forgiving yourself? Oh yeah. Oh I good. Yeah, I haven't thought about it. Okay, that's it. That yeah. you did. Okay, yeah. good. That's probably I have like some kind of seared conscience or something. But the yeah, I haven't thought about it one time. Okay, nice. <laughs> as far as in relation to myself, I did right. think about it with her. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. you did repair with her, <laughs> but you're not then going. Oh, should have done this. No, you're no, just no, like, no. Oh, it's done. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. All right, last question. Uh, when in your life do you feel most fully loved? I feel 
this is like a this is a horrible thing. This is like really dysfunctional. Like I always thought, you know, remember the five love languages book? Yeah. I always thought that loyalty should be one of the love languages. It's not. Like I, Lauren would, my wife would always like read through the book. She goes, "Which one are you?" I'm like, I think I'm just like loyalty. Like, yeah, that's she's like how trying I physical touch. You're like, <laughs> I want more loyalty. I want, I want loyalty. Great. Yeah. Now, a lot of families of origins use loyalty as a weapon. Yes. And so, I want to think that, the, like, the, I want to. Mafia I, comes. To, <laughs> the Corleone what, family comes to mind. That's right. Yeah. Okay. That's right. But like, you know, our, our families like just put all this crazy pressure on each other yeah. and then they use loyalty as kind of the trump card of why they should get it right um i really desire authentic loyalty that's when i feel love the most when i can just tell like we're in this together no matter what like for me that's when i feel really loved is when i just know like the people who are around me just sort of like we're in this no matter what happens we're just in this together that makes me feel really loved I'm gonna, let me try something the the runyon family vacation is quite famous <laughs> Is I wonder if there's that's connected. Like you guys go on these kind of epic road trips. Uh, is that part of it? Is like a sense of an adventure together? Yeah, I think so. I think, yeah, yeah, we do. So what we used to do this. We don't do this much anymore because it turned out not to be as awesome as it sounds. But yeah. we would do choose your own adventure road trips. So when the kids were younger, we would just all get in the car. Every two hours, the kids had to decide left, right, or straight, and then we would do that for two hours. And we ended up in some of like the most horrible places you could ever imagine. Yeah. Um, and some really cool ones. That's too. right. Yeah. Yeah. But so, it was always memorable. It was always, it was always memorable. It's really cool. So, yeah. So we don't do those as much anymore, mainly because uh, my wife, Lauren was like, this doesn't feel fun to me. This is like work. Yeah. Or well, maybe it's fun for a day or two. And then That's it's right. like suddenly <laughs> the idea, the idea of it's beautiful. Yeah. 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 Good. Yeah. Well, man, thanks for joining us. I'll have a link to, uh, out of neighboring. Uh, that's Dave's book. And then obviously the website has a ton of tools for you as well. Thanks for coming on the show. So much fun. For more resources, visit stevecusswords.com or missyoualliance.org. 